Well, good evening. I'm Robin Lovin, uh, and on behalf of uh, our director, Will Storr, and all of us here at CTI, we welcome you to Loose Hall this evening. Uh, delighted to have all of you here uh, f- for an opportunity to hear Professor Kathleen Caveney uh, from Boston College, where she is professor both of theology and law. Uh, that certainly speaks to the uh, area that she'll be addressing, uh, our, our public moral discourse, and it reflects her background. Uh, she began her academic life here in Princeton, in fact, as a, an undergraduate at the university and then went on to get a master's and a Ph.D., and uh, J.D. at Yale, uh, and has been engaged in the study and practice of both law and theology ever since. Uh, She was for some years professor, again, both of theology and law at the University of Notre Dame, and in 2014 uh, joined the, the faculty at Boston College. She has published uh, over 100 articles and essays in journals and books uh, related to law and ethics and serves as a regular columnist for Commonweal uh, magazine. So we welcome her this evening, especially in this week, uh, to, to speak to the question of the relationship between religion and public discourse. She's written a uh, brilliant book about which we'll hear more later uh, called Prophecy Without Contempt. Uh, And undoubtedly that will also be a theme and uh, a a part of her address to us this evening. So will you welcome Professor Kathleen Caveney uh, for Prophecy Without Contempt. very much. I'm delighted uh, to be here, to be back in Princeton to see so many friends, and um, and I'm especially delighted to be in a place that uh, really gave me uh, the impetus to go forward and to study law and theology. Uh, Jeff Stout, uh, who's back here, was one of, uh, one of my senior thesis advisors, and I, I learned a tremendous amount uh, from him and still do. And Robin, I, took a, I was out at the University of Chicago for a year, and Robin was co-teaching a class with a law professor named Michael Perry. And I thought, wow, there are people doing law and religion, and there's a conversation. So it, it's a tremendous honor to be back here um, and uh, among friends and teachers and colleagues, uh, and uh, I'm very grateful. So what I'm going to do tonight is uh, talk to you about uh, uh, my book, some of the themes of my book, Prophecy Without Contempt. But the subtitle of the talk is Some Notes on Our Current Situation. Because I think some of us, many of us are a little bit uh, surprised, shocked even, uh, with, with what happened Tuesday night. And what I'm hoping to do is maybe create a context where we can talk a little bit about 
public discourse, uh, even religion in the public square, in light of some of the themes uh, that emerged uh, on Tuesday uh, about the state of our nation. So um, I'll start now. Like many of you, I think I am a bit shell-shocked at the results of Tuesday's presidential election. I heartily and honestly expected Hillary Clinton to be the president of the United uh, States-elect right now. I followed the polls, all of which gave her a safe lead. Nate Silver, on election day itself, gave her about a 70% chance of winning, and that seemed pretty good. I had joked, in fact, with no little smugness, uh, I do Catholic theology, that Catholic teaching says that the Pope is infallible on matters of faith and morals. In my view, Nate Silver was infallible on matters of fate and mores. I guess I'm now a Protestant with regard to the Church of Statistics and Polling. Oh, somebody said I'm going too fast on that, that I should give him more credit. So what did the results look like? Well, an overview says that Trump won 279 electoral votes, comfortably beating Clinton's 228. At the same time, Clinton narrowly won the popular vote. We are a divided country. Donald Trump overwhelmingly won among white, male, older people and people without college degrees. Clinton won among women, urban voters, more educated voters, people of color, unmarried women, and younger voters. If you go down from that general depiction of the situation, um, we can see a little bit more about our divisions. You might argue, if you look geographically, that the Electoral College looked like what used to be called a Dagwood sandwich. Relatively thin slices of blue bread holding together a big, red, meaty central filling taking the country all across the the heartland. Gender, if you look at gender, men and women were deeply divided by the vote divided by 24 points, actually. Men preferred Trump by 12 points, women by 12 points, creating a space of 24. Race and education. Both Trump and Romney before him won the white vote by 20%. Romney, however, won college-educated white uh, people by 14%, and Trump only narrowly beat Clinton within this group. But whereas Romney won non-college-educated whites by 26%, Trump won them by about 40%, a vast difference in the number. Education matters. Religion apparently matters as well. Evangelical Protestants are one-quarter of the the electorate in America, and 81% of them voted for Trump. Only 16% of evangelical Protestants voted for Clinton. Trump's support from evangelicals could be explained in part by a deep dislike for Clinton in this group. According to a post-election ABC poll, um, 70% of white evangelicals held an unfavorable view of Clinton compared with 55% of the public overall. 
There is some evidence, though, that Trump outperformed people, uh, outperformed Clinton with respect to people of color, um, especially evangelicals of color. Um, Catholics, 23% of the population. Trump won self-identified Catholics 52 to 45%. Race, however, was a bigger factor in this subgroup. He won white Catholics 60 to 37, whereas Clinton won Hispanic Catholics votes 67% to 26. The story is very different among people um, of minority religious traditions in this country. Jewish, other faiths, and religiously affiliated uh, or unaffiliated, respectively 3%, 8%, and 15% of the vote. Clinton won that group at least two to one. So how do we think about these divisions? It seems to be clear, at least to me, that Trump appealed to groups that see themselves squeezed in between people they consider the elites the East Coast, Ivy League, Ivy League educated, you know, Goldman Sachs, big money people, and the Aravists, people who are coming into our country, uh, immigrants from uh, Mexico in particular. In his acceptance speech, he said, the forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no more. So a substantial portion of the people who voted for Trump, it seems, see themselves as the forgotten men and women, but largely men, of our country. Hillary appealed to the highly educated and coastal elites and to those who continue to be excluded from the society by the so-called, and I'm putting in quotes, normal people the people whose race, religion, immigration status, etc., don't fit the standard American picture of, or picture of America that you might find in a Norman Rockwell painting. So what's interesting about the vote and the, and the people on either side is that a substantial number of the voters for Trump on the one hand and the voters for Clinton on the other hand see themselves as marginalized, as threatened within their own country, although for very different reasons. The insults in the campaign, as we well know, went back and forth. When Trump announced his candidacy in June 2015, he infamously referred to Mexican immigrants as a whole as criminals and rapists. But, as the Trump campaign uh, kept uh, highlighting, um, Hillary Clinton uh, had her own insults. Uh, speaking before uh, an LGBT fundraiser in New York City on September 9, 2016, she called um, many of his supporters a basket of deplorables, saying they were racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, and Islamophobic. I want to focus on the insults for a minute. Note their nature. They are ad hominem, really, about the person or a group of people, not about a particular action or 
failure to act that was committed by uh, these particular groups. To say somebody is a criminal is talking about their identity, not a particular crime they've committed. Rapists isn't just saying somebody's raped, it's saying they have the character of people who engage in this behavior. Even the notes about, uh, or, or Clinton's remarks about saying that people are deplorable in a basket of deplorables dismisses a whole character. Calling them racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, and Islamophobic, well, that labels them as having a certain kind of a deplorable attitude toward the world, but it doesn't look into what particular actions or policies that they support or don't support that qualifies them for these labels. These labels on both sides express moral condemnation. It's clear. Something's being morally condemned. But more than that, they express a type of contempt. Not just condemn, but contemn. In this light, we might say that the debate seems about the fundamental direction and identity of our country. What are our basic commitments? Who do we want to be? What are our core principles? In view of this, it's telling that 70% of the electorate said that the composition of the Supreme Court was the most important or an important factor in their vote for president. And as we all know, the Supreme Court is the final interpreter of the Constitution, at least generally, and that's what sets our basic principles. Trump won those people 50 to 46%. Among the people to whom the Supreme Court mattered little, Trump lost by 10 percentage points. So here's where I like to think my own work might prove a little bit helpful. This is our country. These are all our people. Calls to come, to ever, come together, however, despite our deep divisions, are going to be meaningless unless we can learn how to communicate productively across our deep moral disagreements. I'm not calling for a bland niceness here, a niceness that kind of masks a moral indifference on anybody's part. I think we need to be moral realists and even to condemn what we see as injustice in our society. But I also think we need to be sensitive to the fact, the election has to make us sensitive to the fact, that we have very, very different senses of what exactly counts as injustice. Citizens rightly call each other to account for violations of our fundamental moral commitments as a people. We rightly condemn such violations. Contempt, however, is another matter entirely. To treat one's political interlocutors as vile or worthless is to risk undermining their equal status as participants in our community. It is to treat them as unworthy of citizenship as people who must be pruned from our common political endeavor. And it seems to me that on both sides of this divide, we have people who feel themselves in danger of being pruned from our common moral endeavor. 
people who feel themselves the object of contempt by a group of others. So what I'd like to do in, in, in this talk, in the remainder of this talk, is to first say something about public discourse and the important place of a type of discourse that I'm going to call prophetic indictment within it. Then I want to talk a little bit about the benefits and dangers of prophetic discourse. Finally, I would like to give a few suggestions for how prophetic discourse might be deployed profitably in ways that help build up our country rather than tear it down. And then finally, just to open it up to discussion to see how you all see where we stand and how we should talk to one another in these very interesting times. So here's our uh, first section, public discourse and prophetic indictment. Well, if you look at the way most theorists of religion or moral discourse in the public square focus um, on when they talk about how we should speak to one another in the public square, they focus on what I'm going to call deliberative discourse. John Rawls, most famously, focused on the type of reasons that citizens offer one another, or at least to be prepared to offer one another in debating essential matters of our common life together. And deliberative discourse focused on reason and dispassionate search for the truth. What the 19th century um, critic Matthew Arnold tried to evoke by his reference to the Hellenistic cultures of sweetness and light is certainly an important aspect of our public discourse. We need to offer reasons. We need to dispassionately pursue the truth. We need to try to figure out to discern in complex situations what the morally correct thing to do is. But I would like to open our vista a bit to pay attention to another aspect of public discussion, which Arnold gestured to as the culture or the language of fire and strength, indebted to the great prophets of the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Old Testament, which demands not just knowledge of the truth, but obedient conformity to the will of God, and which also condemns violations of divine will as, uh, as, as, as not only wrong, but as threatening to a people's well-being. As I argue at great length in my book, the language of fire and strength, the language of prophetic indictment, is an important aspect of American uh, you know, a political life and public discourse. In fact, it was brought over by the Puritans. The rhetoric of prophetic indictment has in fact been a staple of American public discourse from the time that John Winthrop led a small band of men and women to leave England and found the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630. These settlers really saw themselves, this wasn't just like an idea, this was who they were, as founding a new Israel in the new world, a religiously inspired polity that would be free from the corruptions of the established Anglican Church and immune to the compromises of the English government with heterodox or lax Christianity. These immigrant Puritans came to New England in order to construct godly congregations in a godly community, bound together in a network of covenantal relationships with God and with one another. 
just as the great Hebrew prophets decried the sins of their people in order to provoke repentance and to avert God's wrath, so did the great Puritan preachers. In sermons delivered at a variety of important public occasions in the life of New England, including on Election Day. These sermons have come to be known as Jeremiah's because they echo the passionate condemnations of sinful behavior that pervade the book of the, uh, Jeremiah. Now, somewhat surprisingly, or even ironically, the rhetorical form of the Jeremiah proved far more flexible, far more attractive, and far more durable than the Puritan culture that delivered it. I live in Boston, and you know the Puritans really, um, you know, had had an enclave in the north end of Boston, and Cotton Mather is buried on a hill that overlooks the ocean. But surrounding Cotton Mather is this, you know, um, Italian immigrant neighborhood. It's the north end. It's the Italian food. He's surrounded by the papists, in essence, that he was trying to purify himself from. It's a uh, but at least the food's good, I can say. <laughs> so in the 18th century, both loyalists and uh, patriot preachers um, availed themselves of the form of the Jeremiah and the controversies uh, surrounding the War of Independence. The 19th century witnessed fiery Jeremiahs delivered not only by abolitionists, which we all read, but also by those who saw scripture as giving divine sanction to slavery, which we don't read. You read the Jeremiads on the side of the people that won. It's just as important to read them on the side of the people that lost. In the early 20th century, a variety of social reformers emerged, most notably those advocating prohibition who decried the social evils they combated in a language that would not have been unfamiliar to the great Puritan divine Cotton Mather or, um, or Increase Mather. The flexibility of the Jeremiah allowed it to traverse the lines of political commitment. In the 1960s, American political liberals prophetically denounced racism and the Vietnam War. In more recent years, we have seen uh, Jeremiads um, expressed by political conservatives who chastised the country for practices such as abortion and sexual immorality. So the Jeremiah is an enormously attractive uh, way of engaging in public discourse, and it's been availed uh, of by all sorts of Americans seeking to influence public life. What are its characteristics? Well, as biblical scholars have pointed out, there's a remarkable diversity in the prophetic books of the Bible. There is not in other words, only one type of prophetic speech. So what I'm centrally talking about here is the language of prophetic indictment, one type of language, not the whole of, of, of prophetic literature. What are its characteristics? The Protestant ethicist James Gustafson has noted three very helpfully, I think. First, Prophetic indictments usually, though not always, address what the prophet perceives to be the root of the religious, moral, or social waywardness, not just specific instances in which certain policies are judged to be inadequate or wrong. Second, 
Prophetic indictments employ language, metaphors, and symbols that are directed to the heart as well as to the head. The prophet does not um, usually make an argument. He or she demonstrates, shows, tells. Third, prophetic indictments are usually utopian in nature. Gustafson does not use this term technically, but merely uh, to point to the fact that prophets tend to proclaim and depict an ideal state of affairs which is radically in contrast with the actual state of affairs in which we live together in society. They tend to decry a social evil without necessarily giving us a clear plan for how to make it better. So enough of these abstractions. Let me give you a good example of prophetic indictment from Scripture itself. Isaiah 3.13. The Lord rises to accuse, standing to try his people. The Lord enters into judgment with his people's elders and princes. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The loot wrested from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding down the poor when they look to you, says the Lord, the God of hosts? The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with necks outstretched, ogling and mincing as they go, their anklets tinkling with every step, the Lord shall cover the scalps of Zion's daughters with scabs, and the Lord shall lay bare their heads. An indictment, a description, an evocation of, 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 of response to the very wealthy members of the community, and a condemnation and a punishment. There's not a lot of room in this type of talk to kind of argue back. You're standing under judgment. You can't say, well, the anklet bracelet I'm wearing is actually an heirloom. I didn't buy it. I got it from my great-grandmother. What am I supposed to do? Not wear it. I made her a promise on her dying bed. You know, there's not a lot of room. So what are the risks and the benefits of prophetic discourse? Well, I argue in the book that prophetic discourse of this kind of blistering indictment, not all of prophetic discourse, is a type of moral chemotherapy. It indicts people for violations of the most basic principles of society. It indicts people for actions that the prophetic uh, speaker thinks are going to be fundamentally threatening to the body politic. And in the prophetic books of the Hebrew Bible, these tended to be two things. One, you saw here, you know, really um, uh, taking advantage of and disdaining the poor and the vulnerable members of the society. And the other was any kind of form of idolatry. You see a lot of that in Hosea. Um, so it can be a necessary rhetorical tool to combat entrenched social evil in the community, to shake persons out of indifference, to direct scarce resources in a coordinated way toward fundamental issues rather than toward more superficially urgent questions. If an unjust situation has obtained in a particular society, especially for a long time, it may have become normalized. The harshness of prophetic language can be a necessary wake-up call. So you think, well, yeah, wake-up call. This is not going to work very well. Uh, people are going to wake up very, very cranky. 
So the complication from that analysis is that just looking at history, the use of prophetic indictment doesn't necessarily have to be a socially divisive process. The Puritans just love their Jeremiahs. They love them. Michael Wigglesworth, who's a, the Day of Doom, written in 1662, was a bestseller. He'd be like on the, he'd be on Oprah if he were writing today. He, he was just that popular and was on it for a long time. So how could the Puritan community really like Jeremiah's? How could they not tear them apart? Although you might think they would. Well, here are some features of the Puritan Jeremiah that I found really illuminating. First, they had a common framework for understanding both wrongful behavior and the consequences of the behavior. They had the same kind of metaphysical picture, religious picture of the way the world worked. The Puritans believed they were the new Israel, stepping into the shoes of the ancient Israel, and they too had a covenant, a solemn agreement with God. They had a clear concept of the relationship of their breach of that covenant and the common good. What do I mean? Well, they believed that the community's material prosperity, wealth, winning military battles, crop success, all of that was a consequence and a reward for complying with the terms of their covenant with God. Conversely, material misfortune was a sign of God's displeasure and a cause for the community to gather together for a day of repentance, begging God to forgive them for their breach and to take them back as God's covenant partner. For example, um, there was an earthquake in Boston in 1727. Bad earthquake. Scared a lot of people. Cotton Mather, as a leader of the community, knew what he needed to do. At this point, he was very old and probably pretty used to doing this. He wrote a lot. So this is what he said. The voice of the glorious God crying to the city in the earthquake is this. Let the crimes that cried a holy God for all the vengeance of an earthquake upon you be generally and thoroughly reformed among you. The cry is reformation, O degenerating plants. Basket of deplorables, degenerating plants. Yeah. Reformation or more evil still to come upon you. So the idea was you got yourself straight before God and God would reward you with material blessings. At the same time, they had a distinct sense, and you see this in you know, American exceptionalism. Here's one of its most important roots, that God really loved that little community on Massachusetts Bay, that God was really focused on them and their well-being and what they were doing and constantly adjusting the material circumstances according to his, and I use the, it's a him here, uh, his view uh, of their relationship. But he still loved them. Wigglesworth, and another one of his very uh, popular Jeremiads, um, this one in verse, God's controversy with New England written in the time of the great doubt, drought in, in 1662, said, 
gave, gave, ended with, you know, after terrorizing all, it's like a horror movie, but a theological horror movie, after terrorizing all the New Englanders who would read the verse about what was going to happen to them unless they repented, he said, well, that's okay, you know, God really loves you. Ah, dear New England, dearest land to me, he's speaking as God, um, which unto me has hitherto been dear and must still be more dear than formerly, if to my voice thou wilt, wilt incline thy ear. So, I'm mad at you, but I can't quit you. You're my people. Now, note that we don't have the same cultural context in our own time. We don't have a common framework for understanding conformity or a lack of conformity with our basic covenant, now arguably transformed into our Constitution. In fact, that's what many of our most serious disagreements are about. Does the Constitution protect or not protect a right to abortion, to same-sex marriage, to religious liberty understood expansively? We have, and I think this is very important as well, reversed, and I think a perverse understanding of the relationship between breach and covenant. In Puritan times, the breach of the moral norms, you didn't behave correctly, threatened material prosperity. To the extent we still have an imaginary way of framing things here, it's reversed. For our politicians, the duties of the covenant are to protect the material prosperity of the nation. And if you win, if you say, I'm going to be good on economy, I'm going to be good on war, I'm going to be good on national security, then you get to implement your social vision, your moral vision. The moral vision isn't a duty, it's a reward for fulfilling the real duties of keeping the capitalist system going strong. We've lost, as well, I think, the sense, at least in our public discourse, that God loves the entire community. Pervasive on both sides is a sense that there is a real America and there are people within this America that are threatening it. The Donald Trump supporters have one view of that. The Hillary Clinton supporters have a different view. And I'm not saying they're both equal. I'm just describing this as our situation. So the Jeremiah is an important form of discourse, but in our context, it's a very unstable one. And just like chemotherapy, chemotherapy is wonderful. It targets a moral cancer in a community. But at the same time, it's a poison. And if you don't deliver it accurately and deliberately, you can end up doing more harm than good. So the same thing, I think, with the Jeremiah. What are the dangers of prophetic discourse? Well, one is loss of nuance. The language of prophetic indictment is black and white. There are no room for people who argue for shades of gray in its assessment of situations or of the people who bring those arguments about needing to pay attention to shades of gray. Second, it's an ad hominem type of discourse. An indictment, prophetic or otherwise, is fundamentally a criminal complaint a charge that certain persons are breaking the fundamental law of the community. 
It's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to make these charges without directly atta attacking your target in this, in an ad hominem way. Moreover, like a criminal indictment, there's virtually no room for interpreting the target's behavior charitably. I think this is actually a problem um, from the perspective of any Christian action theory influenced by St. Augustine. I defer to Eric on this. But to the extent that you are trying to interpret human behavior as acting under the aspect of the good, people will think subspecie boni, um, there's not a whole lot of room for seeing what these people were trying to do valuably um, uh, and where they went wrong. Third problem is dualism. The loss of nuance and the almost inevitable ad hominem nature of prophetic indictments conjoin, in my view, to produce a dualistic worldview. The righteous versus the damned, the good versus the evil, the culture of life versus the culture of death. We've seen all of this in spades in our public discourse. Those issuing prophetic indictments identify themselves with a transcendentally correct cause, often God's cause, and those opposing them with the opponents of God. This makes it hard to cooperate. One does not make common cause, for example, with people one considers minions of the culture of death from the uh, conservative side of the um, abortion debate or hateful bigots from the more progressive side of the gay, uh, the same-sex marriage debate. Once you see people as thoroughly bad in these ways, any other form of cooperation becomes very difficult to justify. Fourth, as Gustafson suggested, uh, prophetic discourse often has a thwarted plan of positive reform. Prophetic indictments are essentially negative in function. They condemn situations of entrenched injustice without necessarily preparing a way to ameliorate them. Not surprisingly, it can be very difficult for those who are opposed, equally opposed to what they see as a social evil, to agree on what the right way to combat that evil is. But the habits of prophetic thinking can serve a cause less well in the positive moments of, of social reform because it can lead people to treat those who advocate different strategies for reform, which always is going to involve assessment of contingent singulars, prudential judgments, um, in a kind of realistic way. Um, you tend to see people who disagree with you on strategy as still engaged in a kind of act of betrayal because you take your prophetic instinct all the way down. And finally, we have dueling prophets and prophetic tune-out. Social battles typically include prophets on both sides of the issue. Each group feeds off the other's energy. At the same time, the ferocity of the battle itself may encourage the muddled middle to stay far away from the issues in order to avoid becoming collateral damage. You just want to, that's like when you're two friends, you know, you're friends with a couple or something, they're in a fight, you just back away slowly. You don't say anything. You don't want to get caught in the crossfire. So if a battle between dueling prophets on any of the hot button issues is, is going strong, it can squelch discussion on other levels. Is there a way forward? I'm not so sure, um, especially after Tuesday, but in my book, I argued for 
some substantive constraints on the use of the rhetoric of prophetic indictment based on several models, particularly prosecutorial ethics. You know, um, I think you can draw from there. We're dealing with an indictment, after all. And just war theory, because prophetic discourse is a type of verbal warfare. But the substantive problem is very, very challenging, and I welcome your insights on this. Um, and here's why I think it's challenging. Prophetic indictment really is best used against behavior that is widely seen to be a violation of the community's covenant. So, for example, when the Puritans used their prophetic indictments, they were targeting people that engaged in certain behavior, but that weren't trying to justify it. You know, These people went to the taverns. They weren't trying to say that God thought tavern going instead of church going was a really keen idea because God was really you know, a good guy. Um, they were just going and kind of slinking. But everybody agreed. There was no, at that point, uh, you know, real challenge. But in our society... Um, uh, you know, do we have that level of agreement uh, about what our basic commitments are? Rhetorical standards I can think we can say more about. I think the gold standard of contemporary prophetic rhetoric is Martin Luther King's I Have a, a, a Dream speech, um, and the central criteria um, I'm drawing on here are exemplified in that speech. First, the biblical model for prophetic, good prophetic rhetoric should be what biblical scholars call the oracles against Israel, not the oracles against the nations. Just a quick distinction. If you read through the book of Isaiah or the book of Jeremiah, the biblical books, you see lots of prophetic indictments. Some of the prophetic indictments are directed against the prophet's own people, saying, repent, reform, we want you to reform. I can't stand to see you suffering. You're my people. Um, you can stop suffering if you reform and get right with God. Please do that. I care about you. Um, then there's the other prophetic indictments against the enemies of Israel and Judah, which really call for the total destruction of, of the enemies. And they, they end sometimes with a vision of them, uh, of them wasted. Now, some scholars argue that there are hints of hopes here and there. Yeah, there are hints of hopes, but there's, they're just hints. Um, so, but the interesting thing, if you think about it, is that, you know, you very rarely you know, the enemies of Israel aren't going to be reading those indictments, right? This is really meant to kind of pump up your own people. And that happened, and then it didn't happen in the U.S. So where you see the use of the oracles against the nations, particularly oracles against Babylon, if you go back and look at the Puritan times, um, and, and early uh, American history is in the French and Indian War. You know, so they were condemning, you know, the the French in Canada, um, and the uh, Native American populations who were going along with them. And Babylon was a really great example, right? Because this was Catholics. The Church was the whore of Babylon. Babylon. You could use all of these really blistering sermons to condemn that group of people, but they never read it because they were French, right? <laughs> So you weren't condemning people within your own community in that way. Well, less than 20 years later, you do have a civil war in the, in, in the United States. You have the Revolutionary War, which was a civil war. Should we leave England and go out on our own, or should we stay with England? Well, what happened was 
the, um, they dusted off, the patriots dusted off some of the old sermons and some of the old tropes that had been used against French, the French and French Canada and used them against the people that wanted to stay uh, with the English crown. And, and they used that language toward those people. But now the people are within them. And so you're reading oracles that are calling for the destruction of people who are still part of the community. I think that's where the switch took place. And I think it's a bad idea. I think that prophetic critique among Americans should be modeled on the, on the view that we are all part of the same community and we want uh, to figure out a way to live together. The best prophetic indictment is also accompanied by lamentation, I think. Sorrow for the sins. Not just anger. Anger, but sorrow. Repentance on the part of the prophet and weeping over the sins of the country. And the best prophetic indictment is also guided in some sense by a vision of a reconciled community, which you can see in uh, King's I Have a Dream speech in his vision of of, of the little uh, children of all colors holding hands. So those are the rhetorical uh, strategies I can suggest. But I also think we need some virtues for the use of prophetic indictment in a pluralistic society. And I argue at length that we need two. One is irony. We are really in a pluralistic society. So while we hold on to our vision, I think we need a way of seeing how things can look from other perspectives. We need a little bit of a destabilization of our moral commitments, even as we hold to them. And, um, and I argue that, that, that some uses of irony can help that. Secondly, I think we need a spirit of humility about our own grasp of the mind of God, if religious, or the demands of morality, if not. Can we find that? Can we find those models of irony and humility in the scriptures? Or is this kind of development really going to be taking us far beyond any biblical model of prophecy? I think you can find it in scripture. In the little book of prophets, the book of Jonah, the prophet who was swallowed by the great fish. In particular, I think, the book of Jonah reminds us that God loves not merely us, but also them, whoever they are. Remember, Jonah in the story was sent to prophesy destruction to Nineveh which would ultimately be one of Israel's enemies. You know, the time and the, when it was written and when it was being read and how you think about that. That's all something the biblical scholars talk about. But the people who were reading it would say, well, he's going to prophesy destruction to Israel's enemy. And is that going to provoke them to repent? And if they repent, then they might be saved. And how is that going to work for us? And Jonah really didn't want to do it. He was a bit petulant about it, you might say. At the very end of the book, God talks to him about this. 
And the Lord said, I'm quoting from Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? It's like that. The cattle, you know, you've got, to, you've got to worry about the animals. So God is saying, you know, you've got your prophetic vision of doom, but aren't I allowed to care for these people? Even if they're hapless, even if they don't know their right hand from their left, can't I save them? What was Jonah's answer? Well, the narrator of the book doesn't say, yet a medieval Jewish sermon fascinatingly speculates on what his answer was. At that very moment, Jonah fell flat on his face, saying, Direct your world according to the attributes of mercy. As it is written, mercy and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God. So part of the appropriate use of prophetic rhetoric in this country has to be ways of having maybe not pity, but at least empathy with some of our opponents and also mercy on them, even if they are very far from our own vision. And I'll leave it there. Hall Lectures will continue with a lecture by Robin Lovin on December 8th entitled Political Virtues. The lecture will take place at 7 p.m. here at Loose Hall, the home of CTI in Princeton, New Jersey. The Loose Hall Lectures address questions related to theology and public life. The lectures are free and open to the public. Whether in person or on the podcast, thanks for joining the conversation. Mm-hmm.